to Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's the word of God. You may be seated. And let's let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning. So thankful for another gathering of your, your people. Thankful for this, this family, your church. And so, God, I ask that throughout the whole morning that we would enjoy this fellowship that we have with you and with one another. And as we continue our time of worship by preaching through your word, I ask, Lord, that it would be your words that would go forth, not mine. I ask that it would be your truth that speaks to us, Lord. Give us ears to hear what you are teaching us. Give us minds to learn and and hearts that will be transformed. So we ask that you would make much of yourself this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you guys all made it here safely, uh, traveling through the snow. Thank you for making the effort to get here. I know snowy mornings, it's a little bit more difficult, a few more things to think through when you're getting to church, but I'm so glad that we are having our gathering this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We are continuing our series this morning, preaching through the book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the scriptures up on the screen as well as we always will have extra Bibles out in the lobby you can grab on the way in. Uh, Some of you sometimes are maybe carrying too many kids. You don't have a chance to grab your Bible. That's fine. Uh, We'll have some always in the lobby here for you. But Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. Okay, so in fifth grade class, we were given an assignment to draw a self-portrait. Okay, this is me in fifth grade. I was given an assignment to draw a self-portrait, which that might be a fun activity for you guys later today, a nice snowy day activity to kind of sit by the fire and draw a portrait of yourself. Okay, you guys should do it. You should try. Uh, Now, in general, listen, I was was decent at school. Okay, I was never like the top in the class. I wasn't spelling bee champ. I wasn't anything like that. But most of the time, I, I did okay in school. I was pretty decent at it. I was used to getting good grades and and just performing well on assignments. But listen, I am a horrible artist. I'm a horrible artist. If you've played Pictionary with me or Write Draw with me, you know that is true. I mainly, you know, do stick figures and simple shapes. So an assignment to draw a self-portrait was torture. It was like my worst nightmare. I'm supposed to draw a self-portrait portrait, and I'm a horrible artist. And so I remember this assignment. I worked so hard on it. I spent so much time just trying to craft, you know, the, the, the shapes and just the right colors and the right tones and add, you know, make sure the hair looked like my hair, you know, kind of hold it up to a, a mirror and be like, yeah, 
no, not really. It's not even close, but I'm going to try my best. And so I worked really hard and I took it to my fifth grade teacher and my fifth grade teacher literally would not accept it. <laughs> he would not let me turn it in. I mean, just imagine how bad a fifth grade work of art has to be that the teacher just will not accept it. Like, no, no, like obviously you did not even try on this. Go try again. And so I was distraught. I was like, okay, I'm going to try again. I get the paper. You know, I try to I try to polish it up a little bit, make it a little bit nicer, you know, redo some of the, the, the curves of my face and get the chin right and get the ears right. And I, I tried, I worked hard. I handed it back to my teacher. My teacher said, no, not, it's not right. Do it again. Do it again. So at this point, I'm getting really upset. I try a third time, hand it back in. The teacher says, no, rejects it. And so then I did what any fifth grader would do when they get upset I called my mom and told her my stomach hurt and that she needed to come get me from school. So she came and picked me up and I kind of faked, you know, why does your stomach hurt? I don't know. I don't know. And we talked. Flash forward now to seventh grade woodshop, okay? Seventh grade woodshop was the worst grade that I ever got in school, okay? Seventh grade woodshop. I came on many occasions very close to harming myself and others in seventh grade woodshop. And only my mom would actually decide display the works that I produced. But there, there was one time I was working on the base of a paper towel holder, and uh, I was using um, um, a, a saw, like a band saw, a stationary band saw. I was trying to try to cut some curves into the wood, and something happened, but I, I lost grip of it, and this piece of wood literally shot out from the saw, like across the room, a flying disc, like close to all my classmates' heads and against the wall. And my woodshop teacher just looked at me, just shaking his head had a deep sigh, and I quickly lost all power tool privileges in the class. I just had to sit in the corner and just sand, you know, pieces of wood like a loser. And, uh, and so needless to say, okay, needless to say, there are many things in my life that I have not done well, okay? Now, on a more serious note, there are ways that even every day I fall short of what God has called me to do. I have not done all things well. And then thinking in through my past, there are countless things in my past, sins that I have committed that are not acceptable to God, right? Things that I have done that, that, that fall short of what he's called me to. I've taken many good things that God has given me, and I often have made a mess of them, okay? I have not done all things well. But you know, I'm not alone in this. I come from a long line of people that have also not done things well, okay? Even thinking back, right, to Adam and Eve. I'm going to the very beginning, so stick with me, okay? Adam and Eve, right, they were given paradise to enjoy. They were given one command to obey, and what did they do? They rebelled against God. They disobeyed. They did not do all things well. But okay, maybe their kids would be different, right? Cain and Abel, one offering accepted by God, one offering was not. God told Cain, if you do well, will you not also be accepted? But what did Cain do? Sin was crouching at his door, and he rose up, and he killed his brother. He did not do all things well. And on down the line, generation after generation, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and down the line with the people of God, generation after generation would maybe follow God for a time, but then they would doubt God, and they would not trust God, and they would rebel. 
Humanity has not done all things well. And I think all of you could relate to this as you look in your past. Maybe you were better than me at woodshop and you're a better artist than I am, but I think all of us can look in our past and can remember and examine our hearts and our lives and see that we have not done all things well. None of us can make that claim. And you see, we started doing all things not well when Adam and Eve stopped trusting that God does do all things well. Okay, and I'll say that again. We started humanity's problem. It all started not doing all things well when we stopped trusting that God does do all things well. They believed the lie that he was holding out on them, right? That this one command that he gave in their life, that it was God not giving them the best and what was for their good. And so they looked and they saw all that God had created and it was good. He had, he had done all creation well, but this one command, they doubted if this was really God doing all things well by giving this command. And so they, they sinned against God. They did not do all things well. And when you and I and all of humanity, when we believe the lie that God has not done all things well, when we falsely believe that, when we falsely believe that his commands are not good and that his, his judgments are not just and his provisions are not faithful and his actions are not loving, then we fall into that same sin as well, okay? We are a people who has not done all things well. But listen, church, I've got good news this morning because we've got a hope this morning, and this is what it is. The only hope for a people who have not done all things well is to trust in a God who has. Amen. And I'll say it again, all right? The only hope, you, me, and all humanity, for a people who have not done all things well, the only hope for us is to trust in a God who has. He has. So look with me now at Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Verse 31 is where we're picking it up this morning. Mark 7, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. You remember last week, for those of you that weren't here, I'll give you a little recap, okay? Jesus had traveled outside of the borders of ancient Israel and was in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And we started to see in that story through the interaction that Jesus had with a Gentile woman that the Christ, this long-awaited Messiah and rescuer that people had been waiting for, we started to see that he was not just the Christ of one nation, but for all the nations, okay? And we learned how this woman then approached him, right? We learned that she approached him persistently. We learned that she approached him humbly, and we learned that she approached him confidently, not in her own goodness, but in Jesus's goodness, okay? And now he returns to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, which is a place we've seen him travel before back in Mark chapter 5. And the region that he is in it's not as far away as Tyre and Sidon were, but many still, many non-Jewish people lived there. This was mainly a Gentile region. Look at verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Okay, here enters the scene, a man who was deaf, right? He could not hear, and the text says that he had a speech impediment 
impediment. Which is the case with most deaf people. It typically is very difficult for them to develop normal speech because they cannot hear. But the word for speech impediment that Mark is using here is not just some mild speech impediment. It's not just a a stutter or a lisp or something like that. But Mark is trying to explain to us that this man's speech was unintelligible. This was a severe speech impediment impediment. People could not understand him at all. He essentially was mute, okay? He was essentially mute. Now, we don't know the backstory on this man's life. We don't know if he was born this way. We don't know if something happened later in life that caused him to be this way, but his friends and family, they hear about Jesus. They hear that he's doing some healings and miracles. They bring this man to Jesus. They beg Jesus to touch him and heal him. Verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Now, at first read, this seems a little strange, right? I mean, we've seen Jesus heal with just a word. We've seen him say, you know, your faith has healed you, go. We've seen people be healed by just touching the hem of his garment. So what's with, like, what's with the wet willy and touching the tongue and doing all this stuff, right? I mean, what's going on? Is he just putting on a show? Well, I guess it really, it probably, it wasn't a wet willy. It was just a willy, right? He just touched, he just put his fingers in the man's ears, spit, touched his tongue, looked up to heaven. What's going on there? Is Jesus just trying to put on, like, a show, like, make this some sort of spectacle, well, no, not, not at all, okay? Look, verse 33, it says, he took him away from the crowd, okay? Jesus first, he's not trying to make this a spectacle. He took him away. And we have to really slow down in these two verses because we have to see just how loving and good and compassionate Jesus is to this man, the way that he interacts with him and the way that he heals him. It shows that he understands this man on an emotional level. Okay, because think about this. He first took him away privately. This man being deaf and being mute was likely always a spectacle to people, right? He, He likely always felt like he stood out in a crowd. Maybe some of you feel that way sometimes, but this man even more. He could not hear. He could not speak. When he was in a crowd of people, he could assume that people were talking about him, right? He was kind of the oddball in the crowd. He was used to being kind of the spectacle of the crowd. His brain was probably, his cognitive function was probably normal, but he couldn't speak or, or, or hear, and so people probably thought he was, he was dumb or not all the way there, and so he was used to standing out. And Jesus knows this, and he, he emotionally knows the man's wounds, and so Even with this healing, Jesus is not going to make this man a spectacle or the center of attention. He he takes him away privately. Jesus takes him away privately. It's just him and Jesus. And then Jesus touches him, right? Fingers in the ears, touches his tongue. Now he's doing this not because it's some magic formula. It's not some show that he's doing. Jesus touches him because this is the language the man can understand. Remember, the man is deaf. He can't hear Jesus speak at this point. But he knows the language of touch. And Jesus lovingly puts his fingers in his ears as if to say, I'm about to open your ears. And he touches his tongue as if to say, I'm about to unchain your tongue. 
And then he looks up to heaven so that the man knows, hey, only the power of God can do this. This is from, this is, this is the power of God that is healing you. Because listen, if Jesus had not touched him and signaled this way, this man might not really have fully have even understood what was going on, like what's, what's happening. But Jesus lovingly meets him at his level and, and shows him and, and teaches him what he's about to do. Then look at verse 34, Mark 7, verse 34. And looking up to the heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Jesus sighed. When it says that Jesus sighed, this was like a painful moan or groan, okay? Now, he wasn't just groaning for this man, right? Because he wasn't just groaning and sighing because this man was deaf and mute. Jesus knows he's about to heal him, right? But no, he's groaning, likely because he sees the effects of sin on his world. And he sighs. It's a painful moaning and groaning over what sin has done to his world. I mean, think about this. Jesus, Jesus allowed sin to enter into his world. He was there in the beginning when Adam and Eve did not believe that he does all things well. But Jesus, he's not indifferent to sin, and sin does not cause him to give up on his creation. It's not like he said, well, good luck, guys. You have it your way, right? You're on your own. Good luck with the mess that you've made. No, not at all. He saw how sin had corrupted and affected his good creation. He had made it all very well, but sin had distorted things. He sees the effects of sin, and he sighs. He groans. He deeply hurts, just like all of creation does as it awaits redemption. Hear this word from Romans 8, verses 22 and 23. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Listen, groaning together in the pains of childbirth is no joke, okay? Like that allusion there to, the ch to child, that's no joke, right? I mean, those were the four most just traumatic days of my life, some of the best days of my life when the boys were born, right? But you guys know if you've been through a delivery, there are some things that you can't unremember from that, okay? There's some things you can't like just easily forget. There is a groaning, there is a deep pain and sighing as we look at what sin has done on creation. And, and in Romans, it's compared to just the pains of childbirth as we await redemption, as we await to be adopted as sons and daughters. And listen, followers of Jesus, in the same way that Jesus sighed when he saw the effects of sin, followers of Jesus, like all of creation, we too are to, to groan inwardly when we feel and experience and see how sin has affected our world. This is why, this is why we don't treat sin lightly. We don't treat it flippantly, flippantly but we, we groan. We see the effects that it has on us 
and on God's good creation. And Jesus, he sees this and he sighs. Because although he knows that he is going to heal this man, he he sighs because he knows his mission is just getting started. Because he looked at sin's effect on the world, he looked at how sin had enslaved his people, and he knew that it was going to take nothing less than him willingly giving up his life as a substitutional sacrifice on our behalf. He sighs. He knows his work is just getting started. He knows what it's going to take to break us free from the effects of sin. Because you see, Jesus came to earth not to initially bring divine judgment. He did not. He could have justly and rightly brought divine punishment when he first came. He would have been justified in doing that. But no, he didn't bring divine punishment. He sighs because he knows he's about to bear divine punishment. He's about to bear it on our behalf, to take the punishment we deserved so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters and so that all of creation might be redeemed from sin and restored. Truly, church, our God in creation and in redemption, he has done all things well. He has, and he he sighs when he sees the effects of sin. But not not only has he done all things well in, in healing this man, but also in allowing him to be deaf and mute in the first place. Okay? Now, we know that God is in no way the author of evil, but he is sovereign in such a way that nothing is outside of his control. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, it says this. This is when Moses is speaking with the Lord, and it says, Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Verse 11, then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not the Lord? Is it not the Lord who gives us the ability to hear and to speak? And is it not the Lord who allows some to not? Now, it's, it's really easy for us to say after the healing that Jesus has done all things well, okay? Like after he heals this man, it's easy to respond with, he has done all things well. But church, I'm telling you, that truth, even before he healed the man, that truth was still true, that Jesus has done all things well. Now, before the healing, it might be difficult to see it. It might be difficult to understand it and comprehend it. It might be a struggle for us to believe it. But that truth remains, he has done all things well. Look, look back at Mark and look at the power that Jesus has to heal this man because this text is again screaming to us that Jesus is God, 
right? No one else has the ability to put their fingers in ears and instantly restore healing, okay? The ability to hear, right? The ability to hear and the ability to heal the hearing, it is a power that is from God. Jesus just touches the man and he is healed. Now, the ability to hear, it is, a, it is a complex system that God designed for us. And so let me for a moment kind of geek out with you guys a little bit about this whole idea of hearing and sound, okay? Stick with me, all right? Let's start with the sound wave. The sound wave. When an object produces a sound, it's vibrating matter, okay? It's vibrating matter. Usually sound waves travel through the air, and so it's vibrating through the air, moving air particles, okay? And those air particles are carrying the pulse of the vibration through the air, okay? Now, sound waves sound different because of the the variation in the sound wave frequency, okay? And so a high-frequency wave is vibrating more quickly, and we hear it as a high-pitched sound, I tried to go high. I couldn't very well, okay? And a low-frequency wave vibrates the air slower, and it produces a low-pitch sound, like smooth jazz Seth when he leads worship at church, right? Okay. Now, the amplitude is the level of the air pressure, and that determines how loud or how quiet it is, okay? Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, in order for us, it doesn't matter if you are. I'm still going. Okay. Now, in order for us to hear, our ears have to do three things, okay? One, our ear has to catch the sound waves and direct the sound waves to the inner ear, the hearing part of our ear. Number two, our ears have to be able to sense the fluctuations in the air pressure. And number three, our ears have to then translate that to an electrical signal to send to our brain so that our brain brain understands what we are hearing, okay? All right, so those are the three things the ear has to, has to do. First, your outer ear has to catch the sound wave. Now, everyone kind of look to the person next to you and check out those ears, okay? L- look at the ears. Now, don't be like weird about it. If you haven't met the person you're sitting next to, maybe introduce yourself first, all right? But just Look and acknowledge peop- at people's ears, okay? If you're, if you're self-conscious about your ears, don't be self-conscious about your ears. You did not design your ears, okay? God gave you the ears that he gave you, all right? So don't be self-conscious about it, okay? But the, the outer part of your ear, guys, it was fearfully and wonderfully designed to catch sound waves, It literally is a sound-catching wave machine, okay? So kids, you can cup your hands around your ears. Everyone can try this, even adults, right? Okay? And and you're going to catch more sound waves. You're going to catch more sound waves doing that. You can plug your ears, and you can catch less sound waves. Now, don't plug your ears while I'm preaching. It's rude, okay? All right. But literally, your ear was designed to catch these sound waves. And, and, and look, the reason that the ear has all the different curves and contours on it, it's pretty interesting. The reason that it's curved and contoured like that is so that you will know from which direction sound is coming from. Because if sound is coming from behind you, it's going to bounce off of those curves and contours in a different way than if it's coming in front of you. And that's how your brain knows if it's coming from behind you or in front of you. If sound is coming from your left, it's going to hit your left ear first just slightly before it hits your right, and that's how your brain knows sound is coming from the left. 
Okay, and then real quickly and simplified, the sound wave gets in the ear. You can stop looking at your neighbor's ear. It's getting creepy, okay? Uh, but the sound wave enters the ear canal. It's then going to vibrate your tympanic membrane, which is the eardrum, okay? That separates the ear canal from the inner ear. It vibrates that little eardrum. Once it vibrates the eardrum, the, the tympanic membrane then moves one of the ossicles side to side like a lever. The ossicles are three bones, tiniest bones in your body, and they function almost like a piston that then transfers the waves and air to now your inner ear fluid, and the bones go up and down to, to trigger waves in your inner ear fluid. Your inner ear fluid then takes these waves through the cochlea, which there's like 20 to 30,000 small little fibers on the lining of your cochlea that are all different lengths, sizes, different stiffness, different flexibility. Depending on the wave, it's going to resonate with one of those fibers. The fibers is going to translate that to the cochlear nerve that's going to send an electrical signal to your brain that's going to tell you what you just heard. And I was reading some, some hearing specialist, and they said at the end of an article, and we still don't really know that much about hearing. <laughs> they said it's still a mystery to us that we are learning more each year. But guys, what an intricately, fearfully, wonderfully you know, designed system that we have. I think you can say that when God designed the ear, when he designed sound, and when he designed human beings to be able to hear sound and interpret sound, we can say that he has done all things well. We'll look back at Mark 7, verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Jesus, who designed the ear from the beginning, sees the effects of sin. He sighs. He knows that he will ultimately go to the cross and be resurrected in order to defeat Satan's sin and death. And he touches this man's ears. He touches his tongue and he says, be opened, be opened. And whatever part of the ear that was not functioning as it should, it began functioning. It was redeemed and restored. And it says his tongue was released. Literally, the text says his tongue was unshackled. It was unchained. The chains that held the tongue down were broken, and he spoke plainly. This was miraculous. Miraculous. But think about how even more miraculous it is when Jesus opens someone's spiritual ears. And they hear the truth. And for the first time, they understand. And they respond with faith. You see, this story that, that John Mark recorded for us from the account of Peter, it's not just merely teaching us about what Jesus has done for this man. It certainly is teaching us that, but he's trying to give us a picture of even more of what's happening here. He shares this particular story because it is linked closely with Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 35, which we read earlier in our, in our gathering. 
Leading up to Isaiah 35, Isaiah had just pronounced judgment on the nation of Israel. Uh, he had just pronounced that the Israelites were going to have this, this uh, God was going to judge them for their disobedience and their rebellion. He gave this message of just doom and gloom. The land was just going to be laid to waste. But as often as God typically does this, anytime there's a word of judgment, he also, he also offers a word of hope, of future restoration. And so that's where we pick up in Isaiah 35, and this is what Mark is alluding to with some of the language and the specific words that he's using in this passage. And so just after Isaiah gives the bad news of the coming judgment, he offers a future hope from Isaiah 35. And you can follow along on the screen in verse 4. He says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become like a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing. You guys caught where I emphasized that, right? Shall flee away. So do you, do you see what's happening here in Mark? The deaf now hear. The mute now speak. Sorrow and sighing are, are soon going to be a thing of the past. And so church, yes, we can celebrate the fact that God has the power and the goodness and the love and the compassion and the grace to heal this man and restore him. But also we worship him this morning because he has given us now ears to hear and respond with faith. When Christ came into the world, it was an inauguration of the last days where those who were once spiritually blind, when the word of Christ was proclaimed, now they can now see right? The spiritually deaf who could not hear. Now when the word of Christ is proclaimed, the deaf can hear. Now the mute who could not speak words of truth, when the word of Christ is proclaimed, their tongues are unshackled, and now they can't help but proclaim of the goodness and the glory of God. Surely in creation and in redemption and in all of history, our God has done all things well. He has done all things well. But here's where problems arise for us. Problems arise when we don't believe that he has done all things well. And I've been there. I mean, when we get anxious, we are often anxious because we don't believe or trust that God is going to do all things well. 
It's nice to say God has done all things well. We can say it at church, but then when real life hits us, like, can we, do we really believe that? Do we really believe tomorrow he's going to do all things well? Or when we are discontent, we are often discontent because we we don't believe that God has done all things well. We believe we're missing out on some things that should have been given to us or that we should have. When we sink into despair, we are often in despair because we don't really believe that God has done all things well. I mean, can you imagine being this man and living with these disabilities? That would have been really difficult. Unable to hear and unable to speak. If that were me, there would have been many days where I would have questioned if God is really doing all things well. And many of us, when we experience difficult times, when someone sins against us, when we suffer loss or we experience hurt, we start to question why would God allow certain things and we often start to doubt if he's really doing all things well. But you see, the problem is in those moments, we are forgetting truths like 2 Corinthians four seventeen. We're forgetting truths. We're forgetting that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In those moments, we forget truths like Ephesians 1.11. We're forgetting that in Him we have, been, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And in those moments, we are forgetting truths like Romans 8.28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Church, think about this. What would your day look like tomorrow if you really believed that God has done, is doing, and will always do all things well? What would your day look like tomorrow if you really believe that? Lord, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. Verse 37, Mark 7, 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Church, we have to know this and we have to believe this because there is so much joy and there is so much comfort and so much rest in that truth, okay? That God has done all things well. I want you to experience that joy and that comfort and that rest that comes from knowing that and believing that. But many of us, too many times, we don't get to experience that rest and that comfort that comes from knowing he does all things well. We don't get to because we are more concerned about trying to do all things well ourselves. We're like the fifth grade version of Grant, trying to make an acceptable self-portrait of ourselves for God. 
We keep offering him maybe like better versions of ourselves, right? Like he keeps, he keeps showing us our imperfections. He keeps convicting us of our sin. And so we keep trying to polish ourselves up a little bit nicer, make our image a little bit more acceptable to him. Just be kind of our best selves, right? Be the best version of ourselves. So we keep trying to rework things and re- rework on different aspects of our own self-portrait, all the while missing the point that the spirit inside of us who is transforming us is not transforming us into a better image of ourselves, but he is transforming us into the image of Christ. And so church, you can rest from trying to to paint your own best self-portrait. You're being transformed into the image of Christ. And Christ came not to bring our punishment, but to bear our punishment. And so in Christ, we do not have to stand before the throne and try to present this picture of ourselves that we have done all things well. We don't have to. The gospel frees us to stand before the throne and proclaim that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, our righteousness, right? I think I've heard a song that goes that way. It's pretty catchy. It'll stick with you, okay? We don't have to stand before the throne and proclaim that we have done all things well. We stand before the throne and claim that Christ has done all things well on our behalf. Our souls can sing it is well because he has done all things well. The only hope for a people who have not done all things well is to trust in a God who has. And so we proclaim that in creation and in redemption and in our good times and in our bad times and when the Lord gives and when the Lord takes away, we proclaim that he has done all things well. And as the word of Christ is proclaimed, more of us are starting to hear. More of us are starting to proclaim. More of us are starting to see more and more of the glory of Christ as his word goes forth in this city, as his word goes forth through our church. Eyes are being opened. Ears are being unplugged. And church, I'll leave you with this. James Montgomery Boyce, he was a pastor and theologian. He pastored Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church from 1968 to 2000. He wrote many books, commentaries. I'd recommend his writings to you. But at age 61, he was diagnosed with liver cancer. And from the time of his diagnosis to the time of his death, there was only about six weeks. So he was diagnosed and he passed away fairly quickly and And when he was diagnosed with this terminal cancer, his friends and family, they were distraught about this. There was a lot of tears, a lot of grieving. They were upset. They didn't know kind of how to handle this. But friends and family said they remember some of his final words were this to them. And I think some of you need to hear these exact words this morning. He said this. He said, be at peace about this. God does all things well. The only hope for a people who have not done all things well is to trust in a God who has and will always do all things well.
Be at peace about this. God does all things well. Let's pray.